as we as we begin today, let me um, let me just uh, say that what we've experienced here this morning is very distinctive. It is it is a as I said before the centerpiece of our faith. When I when I read the scriptures and I look at the mountain peaks of our faith, so to speak, those experiences, those truths to which we hold, they are being fought against in this culture. But I would say that when the, the deeper I get into my faith, the longer that I walk with God, the more I uh, dig deeper and, and swim in the current of the scriptures, I'm going to say something that may come across a little bit strange. But whether it's creation or the virgin birth, the death of Christ on the cross to save the sins of humanity, to save humanity from their sins, the resurrection from the dead, the perfection of Christ, you can pick any one of those, that the scriptures are so congruent and so brilliantly pieced together that quite frankly, it doesn't cause me to exercise a lot of faith. If the Bible were strange, discombobulated, random, it would require a lot of faith prior to coming to Christ. That's why it's so important to come to Christ at an early age because in your 20s, if you're not, if you're not anchored in your faith, you begin to look for other things, other avenues, other ways of spirituality. I began to read other religious books uh, in the world, the Quran, Mary Baker's, Eddie's book, uh, uh, Christian Science, and, and just m many different things to explore out of natural curiosity. I couldn't make sense of them. It lacked, there lacked a, a no disrespect to any other religion, but there, it lacked the congruency that I found in the Scripture. So when I take the 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 elements of our faith, the things to which we hold, they make so much sense when I think, for example, of creation and how the, the planet that we live on is, has the exact right supply of proteins, precisely the exact number of proteins that we need to live on, the exact amount of oxygen and nitrogen, the exact distance from the sun. If it were a mile closer, a mile further, we'd all be extinct. We couldn't, we couldn't make it. But how everything has come together, how creation reproduces itself, how species, even though evolution would say it differently, how species stay in their, their own lane, how they don't cross from one lane to the next, how it all fits together. Quite frankly, it requires less faith of me because it makes so much logical sense than does the naturalistic approach that everything came from a particle, the God particle as it's called now. That when I explore that and think that, wait a minute, are you saying that the sun perpetuates itself just because it, 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 it came from a particle and the, and the earth just happened to, to fall at the right distance and there just happened to be the right amount of oxygen and nitrogen and, and protoplasm and reproduction and species and all those things and brilliance, not to mention colors and smells and art and music and emotions and all those things that they all came from a particle. It would take much more faith for me to believe that then it would be to believe that there is a genius creator who designed it all. Now that's easy for me to believe. 
Now, those who believe in evolution and those who are naturalists who say it came from a particle, then when you ask the element, elementary question of, okay, where did the particle come from? Now we're down to the spore theory, and I'm not joking. The spore theory is that aliens from another galaxy have brought a spore, and that's where the particle came from. That takes a lot of faith for me to believe. <laughs> then I think of the virgin birth and how bizarre that may seem to, the, to, to, to many people, but human logic for me kicks in and say, well, if God, if you start with a creator who gave life, who out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing, created everything that we see, who in the, only in the third chapter of the book, third chapter of Genesis said that from the seed of a woman who will crush the head of the enemy, well, if you know, this is biology 101. If you're under 12, shut your ears. But biology 101 is the seed doesn't come from a woman. The seed comes from a man. That God knew at back in, the Genesis, in Genesis 3 that the seed would come from a woman because he was going to implant the seed into a woman named Mary. That this is the same God who spoke to an old woman named Sarah and said, you will have childbirth because I'm the giver of life. This is the same God who spoke to Hannah and said, you will give birth to a son. His name is Samuel. This is the same God that congruently all through scriptures were able to give life. So when it comes to Mary, that the seed of a woman spoken of thousands of years early, when the seed was infused into Mary from the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm like, of course, it makes perfect sense. Because of the virgin birth, we need a perfect lamb. Because the perfect lamb throughout all the pages of the scriptures was required in order for us to be saved from our sins. We needed a perfect offering for an imperfect humanity. What a brilliant logic it was in God's plan all the way back to Genesis who said, I'll take the seed of a woman because this person of Christ had to bypass the avenue of the blood of Adam. He had to be untainted, and in order for that to happen, it had to come through the virgin birth. When I read them, I'm like, oh, that makes perfect sense for my logic. It doesn't even require many faith muscles for me to, to experience that. Then I think of Christ coming back from the dead. Not only the many proofs that we have, but this is the same God who worked through Elijah, who laid on top of a, a young boy who brought him back to life. This is the same God who worked through his son Christ, who stood before a, a tomb with a, a man named Lazarus, who had been in the grave for days, who said, come forth. And he gave life to a dead man because he said, I am the resurrection and the life. So when I see that Christ came back from the dead, it doesn't take a lot of faith for me because it makes so much sense. It's so congruent from beginning to end that it is an amazing brilliant gift that God gives to us. These elements of our faith make so much sense logically. However, there is something in our faith that we've already experienced this morning that makes no sense whatsoever to my human logic and probably neither to yours. We find it in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. This centerpiece of our faith, the thing that makes us distinct from any other religion on the planet, is found nestled right here in the New Testament. Romans chapter 5 and verse 7. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though, for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. Let me explain that. A righteous man in this passage means to the letter of the law. I cross all my T's, I dot all my I's. For a guy like that, uh, maybe someone would take a bullet. Maybe someone would die. But in the context here, this good man is the, is the man who goes beyond, the person that goes beyond. It's the guy everybody loves. Not just the letter of the law, just not being obedient, but this is the guy that just brings life. Now for a guy like that, okay, someone might take a bullet. But then we have the next word in Scripture. I would propose to you that it is the most powerful word in all of Scripture. It is the hinge pin on which everything turns. It does not take a seminary degree to capture this word. You don't have to sit around the table with theologians to understand the, the, the power of this word. You see, rarely will a man die for a righteous man. And perhaps for a good man, someone would die. But the thing that defies logic in this one word, and the one word is but. You think, wow, but, really? That's the most important word in the Bible? Absolutely. Because what we're told here in Romans 5 and, and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Not while we were righteous or even good, but while we were rats, while we were rotten, while we were defiant, while we were self-serving, while we were self-protective, while we were against God in all disobedience in the most deepest part of our cellar, while we were all of that, but God demonstrates, not just talks about, but demonstrates his own love for us that he gave his only son Christ to absolutely step in front and die for us. We stood in the internal, the eternal courtroom before God. We stepped up and we were asked to stand as the judge comes into the room. But our attorney, his name is Christ, went to the bench for us and not only defended us, but when the judgment was handed down, the judgment of death, Christ not only defended us, but he said, I'll take their place. It defies human logic. It's something that makes no sense to us because we've never been loved like that in our human existence. For that reason, it is a fight. It is a holy fight. It is a fight in every single one of us to believe that we could be loved because each of us knows the interior color of the paint of our closets. Each of us knows the rattling of the bones of our skeletons in those closets. Now, some people escape by saying, or try to escape by saying, oh, I've got a lot of closets and a lot of skeletons before I came to Christ. I love to be honest because it gives other people to be permission to be honest. I've got embarrassing skeletons in my closet before Christ, but I've got more embarrassing skeletons in my closet after I came to Christ. Let's be real. Let's knock off the holy horse sense and just, or the unholy horse sense in, that, in some regards and say, hey, you know what? I am still in need of a defender. 
I am still in need of Christ, who we're told intercedes for us, who comes before the judge and says, I, don't forget, I took his place. That's why we celebrated communion early, to remind ourselves that it is done. It is not about doing. It is not hopefully that we'll do. It is because it has been done for us, and we ride in the wake of that. The challenge that we have in this lifetime is that we fight against this. We fight in, in our interior to believe that this, is, this could actually be true. There are people around the world who, through religion, hope that they can find favor with God, that they hope that they can stimulate God enough that, they would, that God would love them that much. In fact, this past week I came across some pictures that reminded me of what people will go through in order to find the love of God, to be accepted by God. Take a look at this. It's stunning. This is excruciating. Now, with my own eyes in different parts of Latin America, I have witnessed firsthand these exercises of self-infliction in order to find favor with God. I've seen people crawl for a mile on their knees until there was blood everywhere to find love from God because somehow they didn't get the memo that started with these two words, but God, and your fallen state, but God, demonstrates a different kind of love. Check this out. These are limes that are hooked in this person's back, walking the person behind him has a spear through his mouth. These are rituals. These are rituals, listen, of those who would claim Christ, some of them. This is, these are not, all these pictures don't come from just other religions, but they come from certain factions of Christianity where they haven't completely bought in. Just a couple of more, just to, to bring it to life. These men put these wrappings around their face. They strap themselves up like a, a mock of a crucifixion and walk through the town with these on. These are people who uh, would claim to be Christians. And finally, I didn't even have the nerve to bring to you the picture of what the backs of these men look like as they whip themselves. You can see blood on their shorts, but you can see Christ, a picture of Christ and a cross on their shorts because somehow... They represent to us the fight to believe, to really embrace that God could love us this much. Now, these pictures show us physical pain, but my guess that sitting in this room, that if we were all honest, we have inside pain, interior pain at times, especially when things are going bad, when it's the worst day of your life or the worst chapter of your life. There are those moments when the chips are down and you say to yourself, does God really love me? Does God, is he really for me? Just these past couple of weeks have been very challenging for me. Things not going right. I started, as I mentioned to you, started filming on Tuesday. Vertigo set in on Monday. I'm like, perfect. Then, we, then one thing happened after the next. We were trying to film and the yard guy shows up and then thunder started. And then one thing after the next and you think, God, you're for me, right? I mean, has anybody had those kinds of moments? Please, yeah, yes. Everybody's yes? Okay, thank you. All right. I didn't see one guy. Oh, wait, that's Jesus in the back. That didn't happen to you. I got gotcha. you. 
Of course we have those moments that we think, golly, does he really love me because something's happening here that I'm not quite buying in and we fight. And I think there's a reason that we fight because we can't see everything. Most of you are familiar with the, the story of Job. The bottom fell out. He lost everything but his wife. Had he written the story, he would have kept everything except his wife because she <laughs> wasn't a winner in that moment, man. She was like, curse God. <laughs> you, you can hear almost Job negotiating. Could I get the cattle back? You could take her. I'd be all right with that, right? <laughs> Counting on the fact that God has a sense of humor. You see, there had been negotiations going on behind the scenes with this, with this, this, this scenario. Job didn't know that. He didn't know what was happening. The friends that showed up didn't know what was happening. It didn't take until the third chapter of Job in verse 23 for him to ask this very profound question. He said, God, why is life given to a man whose way is hidden? In other words, why did you put us on this planet and when things are going wrong, we're not able to see why? Why did you put us in a life whose way is hidden whom God has hedged in, not hedged in by prayer or protection in this context, but in other words, we've been hedged in to be only to be able to see certain things that would cause us in those moments to fight against this illogical love that comes to us. And because we can't see everything like Job, we're like, I don't get it. Things don't look like they're going my way. I don't understand why this is happening, and therefore it is a fight on the inside to really believe that God loves us. I know without a shadow of a doubt that there are people sitting here today that are saying, please tell me more, because it's torturous in those moments, is it not? When of all people you doubt that God fully is behind you and fully loves you. It's torturous. It's more torturous than piercing needles in your skin. They're piercing needles into our soul, and it hurts, and those moments are tough. Today, we look at Joseph. Again, this is the last week of this collection called The Holy Fight, and we've looked at him, I'll remind you, for two reasons, that he was a fighter, and today I hope that you'll see that he, he, was, he was teaching about something to fight for in our lives. And for those of you that are sitting here today thinking, man, I know this fight. It comes to me more often than I want. I believe that Joseph, the story of Joseph, will teach us how to fight this fight today, to establish today something deep. At the end of this time together, I'm going to share with you, when I first became a Christian over 30 years ago, I've heard hundreds, of, probably thousands of sermons and messages and books and podcasts that at the end of Genesis in chapter 50, something was shared and it, changed, it was a paradigm shift that has towered above almost any other change in my life as a Christian because I wrestled with this issue of not being fully and believing that God loved me as much as he, as he really did. Let me review one last time the second reason that we 
are covering the story of Joseph. Not only was he a fighter, but his life miraculously parallels the life of Christ. We're told by Christ, you might remember, after the resurrection, Jesus met with those disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he showed them pictures in the Old Testament of who he was. They said their hearts burned. I think there are many pictures of Christ that are found in, in, in the Old Testament. And so Joseph is one of those primary pictures. So I'll remind you, for those of you that have heard this, it'll be a good review one last time, but you'll afford me the time for those who are just coming in today for the first time to just pinpoint some of these parallels. Joseph was loved by the Father as Christ was. Joseph was unfortunately sold out by his own, his own brothers, and into slavery as Christ was sold out by his own. It's in first, um, first chapter of John, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. Then uh, Joseph was accused for crimes that he had not committed, as was Christ. Joseph was then, because of this, these accusations, put into a place, a, a, a cavity uh, uh, of, of prison, much like Christ was put into the cavity of the tomb. Joseph was released from that prison, not by a power of his own, much like we're told that Christ came back from the dead, was risen out of that tomb by the power of the Father. Joseph, as you, were, as you might rem remember, was then elevated to a position where he and he alone was able to provide for the entire world, much like Christ. When he came back from the dead, he and he alone can be the only distributor of the power of the Holy Spirit, and only because he was released from that prison of death, and now he's the provider for the entire world. You right, might remember that now Joseph was re, uh, um, had a reunion with his brothers, much like Christ will have a reunion with us at the end of time. Now we pick up the story when these brothers come together, and we've seen this little part of the story. It's going to be our starting blocks today. These brothers had sold Joseph into slavery. They hadn't seen him for 20 years. But all of those 20 years, these brothers carried the guilt of unresolved sin. Every day when things went wrong, as you'll see in this story, my guess, reading in between the lines, they carried this with them. And when things went wrong, when they lost a cattle, some cattle, maybe they lost some sheep, they, they said to themselves, well, this is probably happening because of what we did to our brother. It haunted them. As it does us when we don't resolve ourselves with God and just say, God, I want it to be completely settled. I want there to be nothing in between. I want all the sins of my past to be forgiven, and I can't do it myself. These brothers were living in Canaan with their father, Jacob. As you remember, Jacob thought Joseph was dead because the brothers of jo Joseph, the, the sons of Jacob, had told Jacob, the dad, that Joseph had been killed so they wouldn't get in trouble. But he was actually alive. He was well. He was ruling. There was a famine in the land. He was collecting food, storing food throughout the, this time of plenty because famine had come. And now the boys were forced to come to the only place they could to find food to Joseph. Now we're caught up. Genesis chapter 42. They stood before Joseph. You might remember these boys were talking in Hebrew. Joseph, however, was bilingual. They only thought, they didn't know who he was at first. They thought because he was an Egyptian leader he was really their brother, but serving in an Egyptian leadership position. He also spoke Hebrew, but he also spoke Egyptian. And as they spoke freely, 
They didn't know that he understood them, much like we sometimes don't believe that Christ understands our plight here on earth. Genesis chapter 42, verse 21. They said to one another, Surely, without a doubt, we're being punished because of our brother. You see, they're carrying it. 20 years, they're still talking about. You see, everybody was experiencing famine. But when we're carrying unresolved sin, don't you know what it feels like? It feels like, oh, God's against us. Uh, everything's going our, we single ourselves out in a narcissistic way and we think it's just us. Well, the whole world was experiencing famine, but they isolated and personalized it to themselves. And they say, this is happening because of our brother. You remember, we saw how distressed Joseph was when he pleaded with us for his life 20 years ago, but we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. That's why we're freaked out. That's why we're happening. I promise you, I bet they said it frequently. That's why Bessie the cow died, because of what we did with our brother. Everything that went bad, they all always tethered back to that. Reuben replied, you might remember, he's the guy that tried to save Joseph and the whole thing. I told you guys, didn't I tell you that not to sin against this boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. This makes perfect sense to us, doesn't it? I mean, when things go wrong, don't you ask yourself, it must be something I've done wrong, don't you? Huh? Huh? Please? Huh? Thank you. That makes sense. What's about to happen next does not make sense. When God sees us piercing ourselves in order to win his favor, he's like, I understand why you do that. I understand that you feel like you've got to earn your way. You earn a living. You earn your salary. You earn your house. You earn all that. So when it comes to earning your favor with God, I understand that. That makes perfect sense to God. It makes perfect sense to us. We have cause and effect, consequences, actions and consequences. So for us to read this story, and they've been carrying this thing all around. You know, they sold their own brother into slavery and things started going wrong. All of a sudden, you, you, you get it. What we don't get, what defies logic is the heart of Christ, what it does for him to see us carrying around this stuff. Because our logic would say, God would say, well, yeah, you deserve to feel that way. He doesn't. Watch. Joseph understood them, though he did not, they did not realize in verse 23 that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. Joseph turned away from them and he began to weep. In a flash, he saw these guys carrying 20 years of their own garbage. And he looked at them and he had to turn away and he wept because he's like, that's not who you're created to be. I heard a fascinating sermon this past week that said the Bible did not start in Genesis 3. I'm like, well, of course not. That makes perfect sense. But the point was the story of humanity did not start with a fallen man. It did not start with a sinner. It started with a man who had free open door to God. Hey, God, how's it going? God is not only forgiving us for our sins, but he's restoring us back to who we should be, not hiding behind our self-protective guilt, but just to say, God, I'm here. I want a relationship with you. 
And when Joseph saw his brothers, much like Christ sees us, carrying around this guilt and this darkness for year after year, it breaks the heart of God because that's not who he created us to be. When I came to Christ, I've told this story, but for the sake that don't know the story, when I came to Christ, I was a happy-go-lucky guy. I was a musician playing in a rock band going to music school. Life was G-double-O-D. I mean, it was fantastic. And then God intercepted my party life. And I began to read the Old Testament. Big mistake. Start in the good news. <laughs> this happy-go-lucky guy spent days weeping, weeping, surprised myself, thinking that it was too late because some of the things that I should have deserved death for in the Old Testament, I'm reading them. I'm hanging on every word. I'm like, oh, no. I literally thought because there was nobody around saying, dude, chill out. It'll be all right. There was nobody. I was like, oh, no, literally from my soul. Oh, no, it's too late. And in that moment, I'm sure that I broke the heart of God saying, no, sir, it's not too late. And I made you and I hate seeing you this way. It breaks the heart of Christ. I believe with all of my heart that history became pregnant with Christ. That he, like a pregnant woman, by the time God has designed this thing so brilliantly that new moms who are just pregnant the first month they get nervous. They're like, oh man, they start cleaning the house, man. Uh, our house has never been clean. Uh, even hasn't been cleaned that since, really. Now once the boys are born, that's over, right? Get a little nervous. They're like, man, how, you know, we're taking pain management classes and breathing and Lamaze and all that stuff, you know? And you, you're nervous, but by the time you get to nine months, the woman says, get it out. There's no fear. Get that out. I believe that history became pregnant. We're like Popeye. Christ says, I can't stand it no more. <laughs> Humanity is walking around with the weight of guilt. I didn't create them to be this way. I've got to go now. Let me go. We're told that the angels attended to Christ in the, in the temptation we're told in Psalm 103 that angels are the servants of God, of Christ, to do his bidding. And when I read this next chapter, it, the congruency of the scriptures are brilliant. It's brilliant. Watch. Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. I believe there was a time in history where Christ in heaven could not contain it anymore, that this love just welled up and said to his attendants, to his angels, I'm going, boys. I can't take it no more. I can't see it, them walk around anymore. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph. And he made himself known. The first chapter of John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He became flesh, and he made himself known to us. Christ demonstrated such a love that at the time, these boys' lives 
were rotten. They didn't, they didn't have any amount of goodness to them. They were liars and schemers and all those things. And at that moment, it's such a beautiful picture that while they were standing there rotten, right before Joseph, a picture of Christ, in that moment, he began to weep. And he says, I can't stand it anymore. I'm loving you. Even though you're rotten, it defies logic. It is such a beautiful picture. And then he does something that changed history as it's pictured of Christ. He offers them a card. And on that card, that card says, grace. See, grace is this. Grace is that you should deserve the absolute worst. But no, I'm not going to give it to you. Christ takes grace and he amps it up to a new level. He just doesn't say, you deserve this, but you're not going to get it. He says, you deserve this and I'll get it. It is amazing. Now watch what happens. Genesis 45 and verse 4. After Joseph now has made himself known to his brothers, much like Christ made himself known to the world. In verse 4 in Genesis 45, Joseph said to his brothers something that humanity hung on the edge of their seat to hear because Isaiah says to us that sin separates us from God. And picturing Christ, Joseph says these words, Come close to me. Come close to me. Come close to me. These are words that people all around this planet are desperate to hear. And when they had done so, he says, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt, and now chill out. Don't be distressed. It's the message from the cross. You're carrying the weight for year after year. Don't be distressed because I'm offering to you the, the card of grace. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourself. Quit beating yourselves up. That's not doing any good for selling me because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. You know, there's something in this story at this intersection that is screamingly absent. I mean, when you read this story, it's like a Hollywood plot. You can hear the music coming. What's Joseph going to do? You know, they're going to... What's he going to do? They're kind of building it up. And when he says, I love you, don't be distressed. This is all part of God's plan. I offer to you the card of grace. In that moment, something is terribly missing. You know what it is? From the, from the brothers, there's nothing. You would expect, thank you. At least, in the very least, wowza. You know what I mean? You go to pay your next mortgage payment. And all of a sudden, you figure out somebody has paid the entire thing. Would you not utter the word wowza? <laughs> when I was in college, 
I had a, a, a grand piano because that was my trade. And I, in college, sometimes you get the red letter version of bills coming through the mail. You know what I mean? Like you're 30 days late, you're 60 days late. I got a notice in the mail. And it was red letter. And I thought, oh, jeez, again, much like we do with our own guilt. Really, again? I opened up the letter. I pulled it out. And there were three words stamped across this bill of the piano that I owned that I owed thousands of dollars on. Three words stamped in red. Not pay up now. Paid in full. My mother wrote a check and paid the whole thing off. I still do have a mortgage, Mom. <laughs> Just kidding. It's not a cash in. Well, I you can rest assured that on that day, there was a wowza coming out of my mouth. Of all the red letter editions of the bills paid in full, wowza. It's not in this story. 20 years of carrying this junk around, and he says, you're free. I love you. Chill out. Don't be distressed. Quit being angry with yourself. Wouldn't you think there'd be a wowza? There's not. Let me tell you why I think there is. Because they didn't believe it. It was too good to be true. But nah. You see, we're conditioned to be conditional. We're conditioned to, because we live in a conditional world. People promise things and they don't follow through. I promise things and I don't always follow through. I'll call you Wednesday. I told someone this week, I'll call you on Wednesday. They told me yesterday, you didn't call me on Wednesday. And that was painful. And I'm like, dude, I, I'm sorry. I'm not even going to offer you an excuse. I should have and I didn't. I'm, I'm human. It happens. We live in a world of broken promises. We live in a world that, that it's hard to believe everything you, you hear. So this Friday, 5.52 in the morning, I receive a phone call. That's odd. And so it's an automated call from the school my kid's going to. I see you laughing. Did you do this? <laughs> no, it was a male voice. It was senior prank day, I guess. And here's what I heard. Let's see if I can pull this off. Hello. This is an automated voice message from the Sarasota County School Board. We are calling to inform parents of students attending Pine View School. That school has been canceled today, Friday, May 30th. The cancellation is due to a prank that caused the water main to burst, resulting in widespread flooding in several buildings on campus. School is expected to resume on Monday, June 2nd, 2014. Thank you. That's a prank. You see, my pranks used to be, hey, let's stick some gum on the chalkboard. It's getting a lot more sophisticated these days. 45 minutes later, we get an automated call from the principal saying, please, this is kind of the same voice. It's strange. Hmm. Put two and two together. 
<laughs> uh, please disregard the previous phone message that you received because it was false. See, we live in this culture, and even when I'm listening to it, I'm like, that sounds funny with that. I went to the website, didn't see anything where school's canceled. I actually called the school, 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, well, something's broken. They're down there fixing it. Didn't get an answer. Actually, it was busy when I first called. Other people are probably calling it. Somebody told me the day people actually canceled flame plane tickets and flights and everything because this thing was going on. It took them a while. They were just jumped on and everything started going kaflooey. I almost woke my wife up at six and said, hey, hey honey, uh, we're not going to school today. But then I thought, no, you are a moron. It's six o'clock. She'll figure it out. Don't wake her up. We're living in a conditional world where things get promised to us that are not true. I'll remind you that these boys grew up with a father. His name was Jacob. Jacob, let me remind you, in case you don't know, his name was Schemer. And see, in those days, by the way, it was an oral tradition. People passed on stories. And they passed on stories. And you've got to imagine that Jacob said, i got some stories that I'd like to share with the boys, Joseph's brothers. He said, you know, my name, Jacob, it means Schemer. See, I cheated your uncle, Esau out of something really important. It's being very conditional. I can imagine Jacob sharing at one time something very, very painful with his boys. He said, you know your uncle Esau? Your granddad loved him more than he did me. He was a hunter. He was a man's man. And granddad loved my brother more than he did me. I grew up with conditional love, Jacob is saying. Mom loved me. She covered my tracks when I cheated your uncle, and then I ran. Then I met someone you know, Laban. We did a handshake. See, I saw his daughter, Rachel. She was beautiful. And we shook on a deal. If I work for you, Laban, Jacob telling the story to his sons, if I work for you seven years, would you, would you let me marry your daughter? You betcha. Put it right there. Shook on it. Seven years he worked. He got cheated by someone really close. Had to work 14 years. He got, he got uh, sneaked in the, the, the other sister. And he, got, he, he blew the whole deal. Lied. And then he came. He said, then there came a point in time where God said, you got to mend the fence with, with your uncle, boys, with Esau, my brother. And then when I saw Esau coming, I could see in his eyes this kind of unconditional love. I didn't believe it at all. I sent gifts ahead of me because I, I, the only thing I've ever known in my life is conditional love, and I felt like i got to buy his love. And then these boys were reminded that every day they saw their dad, Jacob, he had a limp because he wrestled with a God that he didn't believe could love him well enough. I wonder who in here is limping because they haven't believed God like Jacob. No wonder these boys didn't believe Joseph's unconditional card of grace. All they had ever known was condition. All the stories they had ever heard, and it's no different than you. People let you down. How can you believe them? People don't come through. They promise things. They don't call you. They do this, that, and the other, whatever, and we're conditioned. That's why it's so tough when God says, I, it's all. I'm giving you all. 
But there's something about Christ's demonstration that towers above any human being's promise of love. It's permanent and it's irreversible. Watch. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ died for sins once and for all. Once for all, it cannot be reversed. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Christ is still working, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. In other words, they had priests in the Old Testament, but because Jesus lived forever, he has a permanent priesthood. It can't go away. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to defend them, to intercede for them. Now, here's the passage in Genesis 50. The last five chapters of the book of Genesis are all about the reunion of Jacob and the entire family. They move him down from Canaan to Egypt where Joseph had been sold to. All the brothers are together and the father. If there were music playing in the scripture, this would have been one of the most moving themes that after all these years, Jacob gets to come together with the whole family, all the boys. And in these last chapters, because Jacob was an older man, he came to the point of death. He blessed all 12 boys with a blessing that is stunning. We don't have time to get into it. Prophetically tells the future of the tribes of Israel. It is beyond stunning. And then he dies. And then what happens next is the thing that some of you very much might relate to in this moment. That God... His offer of unconditional love, it's too good to be true, but I want you to see the heart of Christ. I want you to see the heart of Christ in what it does when we have not embraced His unconditional love. Watch what happens. Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. Jacob is now dead. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if? It's the hidden dimension of the fight. These are the worst moments of our life when we say, huh, what if he doesn't love me? What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him even after the card of grace had been played. Even after this demonstration of Joseph, it wasn't a private demonstration. Joseph told everybody, my family's coming. I love, these are my brothers. I bring them in. Christ did not die in a cave. He died out in front of everyone to see. That's why we get baptized openly. I'm openly following Christ because Christ openly died for us. It was open for all. So after Joseph had played the card of grace, openly accepted them before the whole world, they said, what if? They didn't have the courage to even face off with him face to face, so they sent him an email. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father, really, 
It's no longer our father. You know how it is in marriage when, when your wife comes in and your, your children have done something really wrong and says, you want to know what your boys did today? Oh, suddenly they're my boys. I, I got gotcha. you. Your father left instructions before he died. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. They're lying. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of your servants of the God of your father. And when the message came to him, he wept. After Christ has openly demonstrated his love and offered to us the card of grace, and we say, what if? He doesn't love us. It breaks the heart of Christ in two. It should drive us to say, oh God, I believe because I don't want to put your gift back up in your face. And the reason that they did it is because there was one word missing. Wowza! Had they like, oh, oh, woo! Wowza! Oh, my goodness. That is amazing. Thank you. They would not have schemed against their own brother like this. Question. Have you said wowza recently? Have you said wowza like, oh, God, thank you. You know me. I know me. I'm undeserving but I'm not going to doubt your love because we're told in Romans chapter 8, Christ Jesus who died more than that was raised to life, is at the right hand of God still working in our defense is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No. And all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, comma, wowza. That's the power of our faith. Now, having said that, it's almost complete. It's de- it is defies our logic that God could love us in this state. But here's the other thing that defies our logic, that he's going to complete that love by handing the baton off to us. Double wowza. We are the ones to perpetuate this love to the world. Truth can remain dormant. Doesn't make it any less true. But it can remain dormant. You can have the best restaurant in town, but if you don't tell people about it, it remains dormant. Still the best restaurant, but it doesn't get out. You see, people are in a famine to see a true picture of who God is. And unless we take this kind of love that we've received and perpetuate it in someone else's life, engage it, activate it, the world can't see it and they can't believe it. First John 4, 12 
No one has ever seen God. Your neighbor hasn't seen God. Your coworker hasn't seen God. Your family members who don't know Christ haven't seen God. But, there's the other, there's the big word of the Bible. But, if we love one another, God lives in us. And watch, His love, everything we've been talking about this morning, His love is completed in us. This is why in our church, 360, we say, man, we've got to go beyond the group setting. Because in a group, we cannot love to this level. It's when Paul comes together with Timothy that you start to begin to see sacrificial love. You know how it is in a group. We can only go so far. And I love groups. We have small groups. I love them. But you can only go so far. So as we close today, I've been sharing with you that there has been uh, this crop of life change that's happening within our church. It's happening because we're very serious about this discipleship of one putting one person with another person. We call it exchange here in our church. It's a, it's a, it's a plan, it's a strategy, and we put pe two people together. The plan is not changing people. God's plan is of bringing people together and demonstrating such a sacrificial love. And it's starting to, like, it, there, there's wowzers happening all over the place. If you're like, what wowzers? I missed the wowzers.